This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. I'm Wong Xiaoning and this is The Breakfast Grill. The United Kingdom is ranked 8th in the 2022 Monaco Soft Power Survey. No thanks to its strong currency of language and culture. Helped by this organisation that offers a variety of educational and cultural programmes around the world. With a turnover of almost a billion pounds and employing close to 10,000 individuals. This morning joining me is their CEO Scott McDonald and you haven't already guessed it. It's the British Council. Thanks for joining me in the studio, Scott. Now, you've a long way from home, but let's get cracking. I want to start with not a new announcement, but something from 2021 where the British Foreign Office required a five-year spending programme to ensure an overall cut in spending of around £185. So I read, sadly, 20% of staff were made redundant. 20 offices were closed. I think, of course, no thanks to the pandemic as teaching and exam revenue were drastically reduced. What is the situation today? Is the British Council facing better times? So I think three things happen in the in the era you're talking about. Government spending around the world and in the UK was under pressure. Um, government spending in development countries, which is a lot of what the FCDO does, was also under pressure. And, and the UK government made an announcement we would shift our spending from 0.7% of the budget down to 05 and the FCDO also wanted to reduce the spending on the British Council in particular. So, mm. so you're quite right. We ended up um, taking pretty significant cuts. We had to look at the portfolio of countries we were in and activities we did and, and make sure we could live within the, within the new um, spending that the, the government was willing to make. And we did that with cutting relatively few countries around the world. We had to consolidate what we did and really focus in on our core areas of culture, education, and the English language. And we had to make sure even within those areas, we were focused on the things we were best at. Mm. Um, We did make cuts, as you said, that was quite painful to to go through. But I think that's all behind us now, all of what I described. And I think where we are now is the organization is, is much more stable and we're sort of pushing ahead now and trying to figure out you know, how to make the new model work and, and where we actually need to grow. Okay, but doesn't this on some level put at risk some of the key cultural programs like the flagship culture program that you have which works to protect heritage in heart to reach places because you have to save £185 million, pounds, right, um, from now to 2025? Yeah, I mean... It, as the head of the British Council, I think mm. we could spend three or four times the amount of money we spend. Unlimited, right. And I'm always making a case for the valuable things we could spend money on. I think, though, in an era where governments and you know the UK government has less money, we have to figure out what we can do best and prioritize and focus on those things. We have no choice. The things we had to cut, I would still like to do. I think they're still valuable. Okay. But I think we've ended up... You know, most of the really valuable things we do do, we've managed to keep and, and keep focusing on. So what are the valuable things for, from a British Council perspective that, you, that you, know, you definitely need to keep on your roster? So in, in the three areas I talked about, so, so culture is a big part of yes. what we do. Cultural exchange, so helping people connect across borders and learn about each other's values and cultures, helping people connect across cultures so that they can actually address some of the world's biggest problems. Mm. You mentioned things like cultural heritage. It's a part of that, protecting cultural heritage around the world. So that's one bucket of things. There's a whole second bucket around education. 
Um, whether those are education partnerships, research partnerships, science and technology partnerships across the world, moving students across the world, um, and, and all of the things around basically educational development. How do you train teachers? How do you develop educational system? That's really important. Mm. And then the third thing we do is the English language. Um, so we, we do a lot of system design around the English language. How do, you, how do you teach English in a system? How do you train the teachers to teach English? Then we actually do English teaching and uh, English assessment or exams as well. Yeah, which is the most of Malaysians have interaction in the third bucket. Uh, but, you know, somehow we have a better understanding of how the British Council works. But at the same time, you still receive 15% of core funding from the UK government, right? And the balance through commercial activity in teaching and examinations in terms of your total income. Who determines this ratio? Is it at risk? So so the government, the UK government determines how much money they want to give us. Okay. And then the rest... You don't get a say. <laughs> then the rest, you know, we make, it, we make our case like every government agency does. And then the rest is up to us. So we okay. they give us about 15% of what we currently have. We had another 10% through uh, working with other partners. They could be corporates, they could be other governments or philanthropists. And then the 75% comes from what we earn through the English teaching and exams businesses, which then we use to fund the whole British Council. So you know, those businesses do charge fees to, to, to learn for people to learn English or to do exams. But the purpose of charging those is not to make a profit, which we don't make. That all goes into funding the overall British Council. Okay, but I'm sure there must be pressure to embark on more commercial activity, right, in a way, because you've taken a, what, a 200 million loan facility that matures on the 31st of March next year on commercial terms. So is there a, a, going to be a rollout of more English exams across the world, more teaching? Yeah, I think... I mean, there's always pressure on us from the government and on mm. ourselves to try and figure out, you know, are there ways we can supplement our income? But it isn't all through only teaching and exams. And a lot of that work we do, and it's not that profitable. You know, there are many countries around the world we teach English in where we hardly make any money at all, but we're still doing it to teach English. Uh, but we're always looking for commercial opportunities, things that can make our um, uh, our income stream more certain. We're always looking for more partnerships, corporates that can support us, other governments that can support us in, in relevant partnerships. Um, and I think that, you know, that is the way of government agencies these days. Yes. Uh, there's just not enough money to, to support them from the government and from the taxpayer now. Yeah. And because of these cut in funding and curtailing, you know, your cultural events and other outreach programs, do you see the British Council being outstripped by rival Chinese, German or French educational and cultural institutes, institutions like, let's say, excuse my French, Alliance Francaise or Gotha Institute? I mean, uh, what is, how do you respond to this? Because you're so much, so much part of UK's soft power outreach. Yeah, I mean, it's something we always need to keep an eye on. We tend to think of most of the cultural institutions around the world as collaborators. Mm. And we actually work with them. We do a lot of things jointly with all of the all of the names you mentioned. And and they help us with the cultural and educational collaboration. But as you say, to some extent, you know It's the, a competition also these, at the, the same in, time, right? institutions are a competition too, trying trying to spread, you know, to some extent values and influence of the of the countries they're associated with. 
Um, and over time, some will do it better, some will do it worse, but, but it is a competition. Okay, so definitely the UK, the British Council promotes not just English language, but UK as a destination for further studies, right? Uh, but a recent, and it, it's, you know, it sh- there's a recent analysis commissioned by the Russell Group of Research Universities. Each international student generates £132 in economic benefits. Now, and in a single cohort of international students, is worth something like £26 billion to the UK economy. So I think win-win for everybody. So why then is Prime Minister Rishi Sunak likely to side with the Home Office in supporting restrictions on international students applying to UK universities? So I think every, every government around the world has a debate going on around, around immigration and the yeah. value of students coming in and students coming out. And that, that is really for the governments to decide and manage the visas. And we, we have no say in that. I think what the, what the British Council tries to do is highlight the value of international students going both ways. And the value is economic, as you highlight, but it's also um, strongly cultural, and it adds enormously to the diversity of the universities. And if you think of UK universities, I mean, they are real melting pots of cultures from around the world. That's what makes them so exciting. It's what makes them so vibrant. Yes. So you know, those are the arguments we put forward to the so government. So you're not saying, in, in favour of these restrictions? I, I think... We just see enormous value in international students and think the mobility around the world is important. Okay, which then begs the next question. Since the UK government provides funding, um, and of course you're one of the big institutions of soft British power with the other household name, BBC, who ultimately is responsible and calls the shots within your organisation? So the British Council is an independent organisation. We're, we're the biggest charity in mm. the UK. And we were set, when we were set up in the 1930s, the UK was So very, there are no conflict of issues or how are they resolved? Or is there an arm's length basis? Um, yes, it is arm's length. It is arm's length. But when we were set up, the history is important because the UK was very concerned about fascism in the 30s. And they were going around trying to counter it with a story about what the UK is good for. And what they were finding is got government, other governments were saying, that's just propaganda from your government. <laughs> And so they set up a separate organization that's independent of government that is supposed to think about the long term. So we try not to think in short term government cycles. We think about, you know, over, so how, it doesn't how, matter whether it's a conservative or labor. Yeah, power. How, do, how do we build trust over 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? And, and we try and do that now. But your question is a good one because there's always conflict. And we have, you know, we try and align with the current government as much as possible while maintaining that independence. Yeah. Okay. So at the same time, we've talked about this, which is where education is a lucrative money earner. So, you know, I found out that the British Council is set to generate 400 million of investment across the UK from international students, another 100 million in exports for UK exam boards. So what do you say to detractors that turn to you and think of y'all, the British Council, as just another money-making institution churning out students like a factory without real regard for their future and if they would really benefit from doing all these exams? I mean, I, I think the way we think of it is that, that if you think of a country like Malaysia where we're mm-hmm. operating, why are we doing English teaching and exams? It's to provide people with opportunities. Um, it's also helpful for us to, to teach them English so, so that, that, you know, that's the, the language of trade, essentially. Um, but it provides them opportunities to for employment, for, for travel, for mobility around the world, whether that's to university or, or to go and live somewhere else. Or the um, sheer joy of learning another language sometimes. The sheer joy of learning another language is important as well. <laughs> um, and 
And, and we, we are accused occasionally around the world of running these for-profit, but we, we have no choice. They, they are for-profit businesses. But they, what, I'm, what I always try and remind people is ultimately we're not paying out to a shareholder or paying out to executives that are making a lot of money. This is, all goes to fund our network around the world, which is building trust in the end. On The Breakfast Grill this morning, Scott McDonald, Chief Executive of British Council. When we come back from the break, the future of its Malaysian operations after 45 years. BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9. Welcome back to The Breakfast Grill. In the hot seat this morning is Scott McDonald, Chief Executive of the British Council. Before the break, what does the cut in their, in their funding from the government mean for their education and cultural outreach programmes? And does it impact UK's soft power? Now, Scott, full disclosure, I'm a product of the UK education system. Perhaps not the best example of it. But in my time, an education in English and in being in England was an aspiration. But does that still hold true today? Has English lost or losing its allure? So I think English is st- English is still the primary language of trade, of, of mathematics, of science, of technology. Mm. So it's an important language around the world and it is the language still of opportunity. Now, there are, there are many languages around the world yeah. that people speak. There's a lot of focus on national languages around the world as well. And, and I don't see that as, you know, it doesn't, we don't need to have one primary language. Many languages can compete as well, but but English is still is still and continues to be, I think, the most important one. But in recent times, actually, in the last few months, a lot of talk about artificial intelligence, right? So, Chat GDP, for example. So you can do translations with a press of a button and type a few words on the keyboard, and that gives answers to everything. Will it ever replace the need to learn a, another language, perhaps? I suspect not. I mean, I, I think what it will do is is enormously affect how languages are taught, learned, and assessed. Mm. But it, you know, in, in the end, still a lot of human interaction is done by speaking to each other. I certainly uh, hope we continue. Though. And, uh, yeah. it, I, I hope so as well. <laughs> and it, so it, it'd be um, pretty boring and tedious if, when you and I talked, we both had a translator and we were just uh, clicking our thumbs on that. Yeah, but I'm curious though. So your your point is basically the learning of one language doesn't have to be at expense of another, right? They can be done together. But here in Malaysia, we've had this push and pull between our national language and English. You know, is it possible to have the best of both worlds where you are bilingual, trilingual? You know, there's no issue there, right? I mean, I, I, it, if I could have my way, I would be I would be trilingual or more. I only, mm. I only speak one language and I consider it, it makes my life much shallower. So I think being bilingual is terrific. And it, it'd be nice to be proud of your national language and be able to use it and also be able to use other languages to give you opportunities around the world. Um, so then is there then a definition of a native English speaker? Because here in Malaysia, we have debates about what is a native English speaker and the requirement for us, let's say Malaysians do all these external exams. For example, like me, I, I'm like you. English is my primary language. I did O levels, A levels. But yet I'm also told that I have to take all these external exams. Don't I qualify as a native speaker? So I don't, I'm not sure there is a definition of a, mm. a, a, a classic definition of, of English these days because so many countries have spoken English for so long. Yes. Um, I think what... What employers often, universities and sort of countries, immigration authorities are looking for is some sort of um, 
definition of just your assessment of the quality of your English. It's not the quality of a specific type of English. Okay, but then that means for like a lot of Malaysian students, they end up doing these IELTS exams, right, which aren't cheap. If I'm not wrong, it's about 800 ringgit, 700 ringgit. Some people argue, why do I need to take it if I've already had all my education in English and the medium of instruction was also in English? Then it comes across as money-making opportunity. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, and I, I don't think it's a bad argument. And I, I think you know countries that speak a lot of English and, and good English should be making an argument over time to immigration authorities and universities mm. that they shouldn't have to write the exams. And if, if, if those sort of authorities don't want the exams anymore, we, of course, wouldn't administer them. Okay. As long as people want them, I think there's a role for people to actually administer them. And since we have you here, perhaps you can give us some advice. You know, with the British Council having operations in a... 100 countries, what would you say is the common traits or some of the common traits of a good education system? So I, th- I, I think an edu- like it's a really hard question because there are so many levels of yes. an education system. I, I tend to think one of the things I think about a lot, and it's only one aspect though, but is the mix between, you know, you, you need a good higher education system that produces the um, employment uh, skills that you need in the country you're in. Uh, but that's got to be mixed with a vocational system so that you have, I think, quite a level base of employment across the country. Um, and I think what many countries struggle with is to get that higher education system working combined with a good vocational system um, so that most people are employed and most mm. people get respect for what they do, earn a reasonable amount of money and can have a, have a good life. Um, but yeah, that's a, it's a very narrow part of the answer yeah. to your question because there's, you know, education starts very young and goes, goes the nursery, whole way through. right, yeah. all the way through. And how important is it that politics is taken out of the education system? Well, I think we'll never get politics entirely out because it, sure. there's so much funding of education that needs to happen. And, and um, you know, it's such a public good that the government will always have a strong view on what they want to do. And, but and having a long-term view is very important, right? Yes. Yeah, and I think you see, you can see examples around the world of where, of where governments flip and go back and forth in their approach, and that's that's probably fine as well. You learn and and readjust. Um, but I think the longer longer term view you can take, and that that's why I think it's important to have sort of a whole bunch of independent educational bodies in the system too. That the government, in the end, you know, they are speaking on behalf of the taxpayer, so they will decide. But but mm. they can take advice from all these bodies. So it's important to have independent stakeholders in that discussion. Yeah, absolutely, and and it just and a strong university sector, for instance, that really makes its view clear on the the future of education as well. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, Meanwhile, there's no denying that the pandemic has changed education permanently. And I can see even at the British Council, you're delivering a mix of physical and digital offerings, right? That's part of your strategic priorities. There's a target to double uh, the number of customers using online learning to 230,000, I believe, by 2025. But does this ever replace face-to-face and immersive learning? I think it like the answer in education, I think, is like the answer in life that Mm. they'll ultimately be complementary. Like we will have more and more online and digital solutions to these things. I hope they end up being complementary to traditional ways where we actually still talk together and and spend time together as people. Um, And I think the answer in teaching is probably the same as as the answer anywhere else. Okay, and, um, you know, 
the other thing that you mentioned earlier is partnerships are a strategic initiative. And I see that in your corporate plans. So I'm curious, has there been discussions with the Malaysian government on a working relationship? Um, you know, what's the progress there? Has there always been one? So we've always had various agreements with, you know, certain ministries or the, or the overall government here on things that we're doing, uh, particularly around education system design and teacher training, for instance. Mm. But there's often um, agreements we will have around culture as well or, or around other areas. And those, they tend to vary through time depending on the government, depending on the, the goals of the government. And and sometimes we have these MOUs that can last 50 years or 70 years. Sometimes we change them every two years. Sometimes we go a decade without having one. So we've had a change in government. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got a new education minister. I'm not sure whether you're going to see her this time when you're in the country. But what initiatives are being currently run now with the government? Or are they all expired? So no, no, there's still still British Council initiatives going on here with the government. I don't, I, I don't have... Um, all the detail on them that mainly to do with teacher training for English teaching. Okay. And what do you think of our standard of teaching of English here in, our, in the government schools? Or maybe that's a hard question because you're not on the ground. Yeah, it's a hard question for me not, not being on the ground. My, the, uh, the team would have a better answer. <laughs> okay. Now, interestingly, 50% of grants in aid is going to be spent on 25 priority countries, of which Malaysia is on that list. Why are we suddenly so important? So I think there's, from a UK's perspective, there's a, a whole set of groups of countries around the mm -hmm. world. We have we have close allies. We have close European allies. We have the US. We have then you know big countries that are in some ways allies and competitors, like like a China. You know, mm -hmm. it's a complex relationship. But then there are a whole set of you know large important countries around the world who are almost unaligned in, in some way. They're the global middle ground countries. They're important, they're growing fast, they're ec economically strong. Um, and we think it's incredibly important for the UK to have a relationship with the people in those countries and to build trust over a long period. And Malaysia fits into that category, and that's why it's a priority. And 75 years here in Malaysia, right? So what are the future of operations? What are the plans to grow British Council? So, so we opened up here in 1948. It is our 75th anniversary mm -hmm. this year. We have about 130 people uh, in Malaysia, and the the plan is is to is to um, you know maintain our presence here and try and grow over time. I think we're in an interesting state. The UK Malaysian relationship is strong, but it could be stronger, and we need to evolve it and we need to continue building trust. So, so our commitment here is is strong in the areas I talked about earlier. And I presume you would still want UK to be the, the choice destination for students to go and study there? Always. Always, provided the pound <laughs> isn't so strong. That is really the big headwind. On that note, thank you for your time. Today on The Breakfast Grill was Scott McDonald, Chief Executive of the British Council. I'm Wong Shaoning, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.